Thanks, brother. When do I have to end? <laughs> well, it is great to be with you, and it has been such a huge joy. We have actually some sister churches in our region uh, that we send our people to when they move away, uh, you know, close by, and they come to our church, and one of them is Mike Fabares, uh, Compass Bible Uh, is one of our sister churches where we exchange people and some of their people make their way to our region. I would love to have you as a sister church. You're just a little too far away. You know what I mean? Uh, The the commute's pretty long. So maybe we'll just call you a cousin. Uh, How's that? Uh, That work? Uh, the, the really, really good cousins in, uh, in Texas. So it's been a huge joy. I would love for you, if you would, to open your Bibles to First Peter chapter 5. We've been finding ourselves in this great epistle, and uh, I'd like to also wrap up our time here. But I wanted to tell you right up front how I got it wrong, how I got it wrong. I, nine to 12 years ago, uh, the exact date uh, I've kind of lost, but in the process of training men for ministry, I was training my men in the Greek language so that they would be able to interpret the Bible uh, using the Greek language uh, to help them determine the author's intended message and not what we want it to say, but actually what God intended it to say. And so as my students were preparing to teach on 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 5, uh, I was preparing my own Greek background. And as I was doing that, and to prepare for our you know, time together and to interact together, I was shocked by what I found. Because my entire life, I have really had a passion for eldership and leadership. And this is one of those passages that addresses elders and leaders. And yet I found as I was studying this passage that this passage is really not merely about the function of elders who shepherd the church, but something far greater. In fact, the main focus of the passage is different than what I thought. And I'm allowing the language to just speak for itself and looking at the Greek made it obvious that there are actually three groups of people that are being addressed in this section of Scripture that are in view, and I never really saw it before, and each unique group is given one command. So there's three groups, and they have three imperative commands, each one. Three major nouns, three major commands or verbs that go with those nouns, and it basically was very obvious in the original language, and I had missed it uh, the entire time until about, like I said, about nine to 12 years ago. The focus of 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 5, is not merely elders, but it's actually about all of you, the entire congregation. The focus here is truly about the three groups uh, in this particular congregation and every congregation that Peter's addressing to here. And the key here is not shepherding or submission uh, that you might draw from just a, a glance reading of the text, but actually the focus here is humility. Humility. You see, the broad purpose of this letter is to teach believers how to survive as things become very intense, hostile. It's, it's a persecuted time. So let me show you what I mean and then explain the text as God intended. Uh, open your Bibles there if you are, First Peter 5. Uh, take that outline that they've given you. And let me have you circle either on your outline or if you're really bold and crazy in your Bible itself. And, and circle in verse 2, elders. Elders. You see that there? Elders are to shepherd the flock, all right? Verse 1 there, elders. Uh, And then uh, take a look at then verse 5. At the very beginning, it says young men. Circle young men. Uh, 
And then, if you can, find in the middle of verse 5 this uh, phrase, all of you, all of you, right there. Those are the three groups, elders, young men, and all of you that are in view here. And then you can circle the commands if you want. Uh, There in verse 2, shepherd the flock, Uh, that's the big command there for elders. And then for young men, uh, they are to likewise be subject to their elders. So that's the big verb there. Their big command is to be subject. And then all of you there in the middle of verse 5, at the very end, you're to clothe yourselves with humility. Clothe yourselves. So Peter's not merely talking to elders here. He's talking to the entire church family. And what he's saying here when he wrote this letter, he's giving instruction to believers who've been scattered abroad in what we have now as modern-day Turkey and Asia Minor, who are currently experiencing persecution. The time of Nero is about to hit, and the government is beginning to turn against Christians, and the church is taking some painful hits, and life and ministry are hard. There's great sacrifice. So Peter exhorts them to stand firm in grace. That's the key verse of 1 Peter. Stand firm in God's grace in 1 Peter 5.12. And then he, as he wraps up this letter, he exhorts group number one, the elders, Group number two, the young men, and group number three, the entire congregation to stand firm in God's grace. Okay, so how are we supposed to stand firm, though, when it gets difficult? Well, the answer is humility. What's the answer? Humility. Humility. Notice how Peter begins verse one. Take a look at it. He says, therefore, I exhort the elders among you And look at that phrase, as your fellow elder. Stop right there. Peter is an apostle. Peter is the one who has authority. Peter actually could come to the church with, like Paul did, a rod of iron. He has this massive authority, and yet he joins them as a fellow elder. He aligns himself with them. He takes his place as part of the elder team. And in doing so, he's showing humility. Peter's giving them an example of humility. He's demonstrating humility. Now check out how Peter ends the paragraph in verse 5 and 6. Take a look at it. He says, you younger men likewise be subject to your elders and all of yourselves clothe yourselves with what? Humility toward one another for God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the what? Then in the next paragraph, he begins with another command, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in the proper time. Peter ends the paragraph in verse 5 with a command for all to be humble. He starts the next paragraph with a command to be humble. And when a writer begins a paragraph with an example of humility and ends with a command of humility, what do you think he's talking about between those two? Answer? Humility. You are so sharp. In the context of the entire letter of 1 Peter, this passage is not merely about humility, but emphasizing the importance of humility when life gets difficult for the church. So what is God's secret for a church experiencing tough times? You may not be experiencing tough times right now, but those days are coming. And the answer uh, is to practice humility. As he's asking them to stand firm in God's grace, he wants the church to be saturated with humility. The key to a great church is to be overwhelmed with humility. What kind of church avoids church splits? 
divisions, harshness, politics, difficulties in that realm. It's a church that is drowning in what? Humility. So how do churches practice humility? How do we answer? Elders, verse 2, you shepherd the people God's way. Young men, verse 5, you non-elders, you submit to your elders, and every one of you, verse 5b, clothe yourselves with humility. This is relating to all of us. My focus this morning is verse 5, but I'm trying to set the stage to get there, and that is the author's intended meaning of this passage. The goal of this church in Houston, Texas, the goal of any church is to think less about yourself and to think more about Christ than any other church. It's to practice humility, not to be better than another church, but to think less of you and more of Christ. And get this, you want to be a church that thinks less about yourself than any other church. So what is humility? Let me borrow from C.J. Mahaney in the book that he called Humility. He says, quote, and there it is in your outline, humility is honestly assessing ourselves in light of God's holiness and our sinfulness. Humility is not, I'm a worm and everybody's better than me, but an accurate assessment of yourself and God. Now right now, you might not be passionate about humility, but you should be. Why? Because it is a desperate need of yours. And it's a desperate need of this church, not because of any assessment that I'm giving, but because that's the nature of humanity and even the nature of Christians. You have an urgent need in your life and my life for humility. Now, why would I say that? Because what was the first sin in the universe? Pride. What is the favorite sin of the devil? Pride. What is the worst sin in your life? pride. You say, Chris, I'm not so bad. Really? Do you recognize pride in your life? You and I should. So let me give you some more obvious evidences of pride in your life. And let me ask you, would you say this about yourself? Is this you? Are you ready? Here you go. Here's some thoughts that would expose pride in your life. I tend to be self-sufficient in the way that I live my life. I don't live with a constant awareness that my every breath is dependent upon the will of God. I tend to think I have enough strength, enough ability, enough wisdom to live and manage my life. You think that way, that's a manifestation of what? Pride. I'm often anxious about my life and the future. I tend not to trust God, rarely experience His abiding and transcendent peace on my soul. When I make a mistake, I blame others. I crush. I fall apart. I often have my feelings hurt. I'm overly self-conscious. I tend to replay in my mind how I did, what I said, how I'm coming across to others. I'm very concerned about what people think of me. I think about these things constantly. I fear man more than God. I'm afraid of others. I make decisions about what I will say and do based upon this fear. I'm afraid to take a stand for things that are right. I'm concerned about how people will react to me or perceive my actions or words. I don't often think about God's opinion in a matter. I primarily seek the approval of man. A manifestation of pride. 
I often feel insecure. I don't want to try new things or step out into uncomfortable situations because I'm afraid I'll fail or look foolish. I'm easily embarrassed. I regularly compare myself to others. I'm performance-oriented. I feel like i got greater worth if I do well. I'm self-critical. I tend to be a perfectionist. I can't stand for little things to be wrong because they reflect poorly on me. And I have a hard time putting my mistakes behind me. I desire to receive credit and recognition for what I do. I like people to see what I do and let them know that they noticed. And I feel hurt and offended when they don't notice. And I'm overly concerned about my reputation and hate being misunderstood. I want people to be impressed with me. I want people to notice my looks, my strength, my clothes, and be attracted to me. I like my accomplishments being known. I'm overly competitive. I always want to win and come out on top. And it bothers me when I don't. That's every man in the room here. Uh... I'm self-serving. When asked to do something, I find myself asking, how will this help me or will I be inconvenienced? I find myself wallowing in self-pity. I'm consumed with how I'm treated by God and others. I'm pretty insensitive to others and I have a know-it-all attitude. I'm impressed with my own knowledge. Are you proud? Answer? Thank you. Yes, you are. Many theologians view pride not only as one of the worst sins, but pride is at the core of all sin. John Stott writes that pride is not only the first of the seven deadly sins, it itself is the essence of all sin. And the only cure for pride and your desperate need and my desperate need is humility. And that which Peter wants you to cultivate personally And for this church and my church and every church, genuine church, to cultivate corporately. You need it, we need it, so let's pursue it. In fact, God loves His followers to be humble. You remember what God said of Moses? Take a look in your outline in Numbers 12, verse 3. Would you read this out loud with me? Let's read it together. Ready? Numbers 12, verse 3, there in your outline, says this. Here we go. Now the man Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. Christ told us that one of His attributes is humility. Read aloud with me Matthew eleven twenty nine. Let's read it together. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Christ is humble in heart. So the only way you can truly glorify God, please Him, and be like Christ is to be humble in heart. Do you want to become doers of the Word and grow humble? I hope so. Because remember, no one here is going to write a book after today, Humility and How I Attained It. They're not going to do it. Be warned that developing humility is not easy. Because God loves the humble and the the world hates humility. In fact, non-Christians, friends, view humility as weakness, as dumb, as wimpy, as stupid, as a bad self-image. In business, you're told to be self-assured and aggressive. In school, you need to brag about yourself and focus on your looks. And you have all been taught to feel good about yourself. I know a pastor friend of mine who went to Starbucks and was asked by the staff, how are you doing today? And his answer was, better than I deserve. And the entire coffee shop, staff and customers, launched into an exhortation to improve his self-image. Our whole world is bent against humility. Now, back when I had TV... The first year of this show called American Idol. Anybody with me? I saw some of it back then, and I could not believe how some people who sang horribly uh, thought that they sang wonderfully. Are, Are you with me on this? And they were shocked 
when Simon told them the truth. And they argued with him. You can't be right. Wow. The highest value in our culture is feel good about yourself. I mean, we don't even... uh, We don't... (laughs) I'm sorry. Oh, when you're on a little league team, everybody gets a trophy now. You could be the worst player on the team and you got a trophy. <clears throat> sorry. <laughs> to really develop humility, you got to be willing to be misunderstood, not like made fun of. You got to swim against the raging rapids of pride that is our culture. It's not going to be easy. And if you're a non believer or some sort of religious, self deceived churchgoer, you won't be able to cultivate true humility because you don't have the inner resources to come, that come with genuine salvation in Christ. Where, where do genuine Christians start? Well, we look to the Lord Jesus Christ who was humble in heart. We depend on His Spirit moment by moment. We saturate our thinking with His Word that we find in 1 Peter 5. So how does He start here? How does this whole thing begin and function in humility? Well, He starts with an example in your outline of humility in verse 1. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. He exhorts, not commands, though he has the right to command as an apostle. Humility treats others with respect. And he calls himself a fellow elder, though he's an apostle and can come with the rod of iron, has that authority. The humility doesn't focus on authority, position, or power. And Peter reminds them of his own sin his greatest failure. Did you see that there? His biggest mistake here when he refers to himself as a witness of the sufferings of Christ. What happened when Peter witnessed the sufferings of Christ? He denied Christ three times, did he not? Humility wears its failures, its weaknesses, and mistakes like a wreath. He didn't hide sin. It talks about failures as if to say, see what God saved. See what God's grace can do with a sinner like me. See how God can glorify Himself with such a weak vessel? Humility doesn't focus on your godliness, your maturity as a believer. It focuses on Christ's righteousness and everything that He's done for you. And next Peter tells them his hope, his desire, his attention is not on this life, but on the life to come. Look what he says, a partaker of the glory to be revealed. Peter is not a fan of this world. Peter's not investing in this world. He's not in love with this life. Peter is not crazy about some team, a sport, a vacation spot, a lazy river, a new phone, or a movie. Peter's actually a focused guy, focused with joy on his home in heaven. That's what he says a partaker of the glory that is to be revealed. He's talking about the return of Christ in glory, a better life, a good life, the best life, eternal life. He's not stuck here. Humility recognizes that we haven't gone home yet. And it's focused on Christ and heaven, on God ruling this planet. Not now, not our comforts, not our pleasures, not our joys or sorrows in this life. Peter displays true humility in verse 1. Then he charges those three different groups with three commands that basically result in humility in the church. The first command, number one, is elders are commanded to shepherd the flock. Shepherd the flock. Churches are led by, if they're led by boards of businessmen uh, who basically, you know, have achieved some measure of success in this life, do not cultivate humility. Churches are to be led by godly men who are qualified and function as shepherds who are among the sheep they shepherd, displaying hearts that are willing, eager, and meek, and are longing for the reward in heaven and not merely good things now, and will cultivate a church saturated with humility. Read with me, if you would, verses 2 through 4. He says, Shepherd the flock of God among you, 
exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lordy over those allotted to your charge, but proving yourselves to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory." Elders have two duties. One is to shepherd. The main command of a shepherd in the New Testament is to, I mean, as an elder, is to shepherd. And then Peter also calls elders to lead, telling them to exercise oversight. And he makes certain that their shepherding and leading are truly spirit-empowered and not like the world by giving them three major attitudes to cultivate. Three major character issues that will make their shepherding and leadership like Christ and not like the world. They're to be not forced but willing, not resentful, but eager, not controlling, but meek. And the driving motivation for this work is verse 4. Take a look at it. To hear from the senior shepherd, Christ himself, the one they love more than life itself, well done, good and faithful under shepherd. Here's your eternal crown. Now the final two groups is found in verse 5. And this is what I've been building up to. Everything else is now introduction. God, through Peter, gives each of these groups one command to obey and will cultivate humility in the church, especially when life gets tough. So who does Peter focus on? Well, group number two, number two in your outline, young men are commanded to submit to elders. Okay, submit to elders. If you are a non-elder, then he's calling you to submit. Look at verse 5. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. Peter says, likewise, uh, marking a change of focus from one group to the next. And even though there's a lot of debate here as to exactly who he's talking about, uh, the ESV and NASB agree that it is younger men in the congregation. And in that culture, the focus would have been men. So why does he say younger men submit to your elders? Why would he say that? Jay Adams gives this answer. He says this, quote, It is often hard for them to do so. The hot blood of youth may run so strongly that younger members of the congregation find it hard to move as slowly and deliberately as their elders. They want change now, end quote. Does that that remind you of anyone? It is possible for the elders to become too conservative in their thinking and acting and decision-making, but often younger men fail to recognize the careful, cautious judgment is often required in the church as spiritual leaders. That's why they must submit. They should respect the judgment of their elders and be willing to learn from them. It's also true that elders should listen to the voice of youth, which at times may bring freshness and insight into their deliberations. But submission does not require silence as long as the young are respectful and speak directly to elders and maintain a submissive heart. But spiritual young men are described in the New Testament. This is how you're described as those who fight for truth, those who are ready for battle. Those who stand firm on convictions, but are often hard-headed, full of juice, and so Peter wants them to learn humility, and as they do, they do so for the church to survive and do well. The word likewise there in verse 5 means in the same way, and in the same way as the elders learn to show humility by shepherding, the same way young men learn humility through submission to your elders. Humility is shown when young men submit. Now picture yourself, if you would, a soldier in Iraq. You're at war. There are checkpoints with the threat of bombs going off at any moment. And at times you're in firefights and some of your fellow soldiers have been wounded, some of your friends, and some have been killed. 
Now, if you picture that scene, you'll understand what Peter's saying here. The church is being persecuted, and there are some Christians who are dying. What do you do? Peter says, follow your officers. Submission is a military term. It means to rank yourself under, follow the leadership, and obey the orders of your commanders. That's the context here. Why? Not because they're always right, but because it is the only way to be humble and the only way to show God off. Submission is what you find in the Trinity. In this whole weekend together, I've been trying to focus on not just the character of God, but the person of God in the person of God the Son, God the Spirit, and God the Father, the three persons of the Trinity. And even though they're completely equal and they're one, God the Son submits to God the Father. And this is how the Son glorifies the Father, and this is how we glorify the Father through submission. So Peter's already talked at length about chapter 2 about submission. So he says here, like a child to a parent, like a citizen to a police officer, like a wife to a husband, like a slave to a master, men in the church who are non-elders express humility through ranking themselves under the elders. Now how do you know when submission is happening in a church? Submission is more than obedience. Submission is also an attitude, a willingness, a hunger to do what the Lord wants us to do. In most churches, even this church and my church, submission is great until you want to sin and you're confronted. Until there's something you want but you're denied. Until you think your leaders are unloving. Or until you get overlooked, passed by, or not asked. Until your kids act up or don't like something or feel left out or they get hurt somehow in the student ministries or until all your girlfriends say one thing and the elders say another thing. So then submission is dropped and then I do what I want. That's not submission in the New Testament. God says something totally different. Unless they're commanded to disobey God's Word, Peter says the men of the church are to be subject to your elders. In fact, Corinthians 16, verses 15 to 16, puts it this way. Now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that they were the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to, for ministry to the saints. Ready? That you also be in what? Subjection to such men, and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. You're not submissive when you're critical, resentful, slanderous, disobedient, undermining your elders. You, you are certainly not humble. And only the humble submit. Only those born again in Christ and daily dependent upon the Spirit of God can submit. So are you humble like Christ? There's no agenda in this. This is just what the Scripture teaches. Are you humble like Christ? Do you submit? Now, you say, well, I'm not a young man. Oh, good. Then every man, woman, and child in this congregation uh, relates to point number three, which is number three, every believer is commanded to wear humility. To wear humility. Stay with me. Now look at verse five. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. And who of you? All of you. One more time. Who of you? All of you. Clothe yourselves. There's the command with humility. Toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble. Peter says, I command you to wear humility like a garment. I command you to saturate yourselves with humility. Show humility, live it, long for it, love it. Do you have a favorite set of clothes? Some of you, it's probably blue jeans and a t-shirt. Are you, are you with me? Am I the only one that has favorite clothes? I, I love cargo shorts. I do. I live for cargo shorts. My wife is trying to, always trying to clean out my short drawer because it's always got cargo shorts in there. 
and, and then a cotton shirt. I love a cotton shirt. And I, I would wear, if, if you'd let me, cargo shirts right now and, and a cotton. I love that. Do you have a favorite outfit? Anybody? Okay, please nod just a little bit. Okay, he's totally strange. I'm not going to cooperate with a preacher. Okay. <laughs> Peter says this. Are you ready? I want your favorite outfit in the church to be humility. That's your favorite outfit. Wear it, show it off, serve on it, talk with it. The third group of people is the rest of the congregation, elders, men, women, children, all of you, students, seniors, all of you, clothe yourself. Now, clothe is a command. It's in the middle voice. Middle voice in this particular context means you apply it to yourself. No one forces humility on you. You are told here, commanded, to apply humility to yourself. God expects you to clothe yourselves a particular way to wear humility. And the word verb clothe here, the command here, actually means to tie something on oneself, such as a work apron worn by servants. Now this is a reference to something extremely familiar, and I believe they got it right away in the New Testament. You may not right now. Peter is painting a powerful picture here of these churches, and they understood the image. In the first century, slaves would wear a white scarf or a white apron or unique white coveralls to distinguish themselves from freemen. They wore the clothing of a slave that made them distinct. Are you getting the imagery here? And Peter's actually describing a very humbling event. Because one night, Jesus Christ Himself actually put on the white garment of a slave and served others like a slave when He washed the disciples' feet. And that's what Peter means by clothing yourself with humility. To treat each other the way Jesus did when He wrapped Himself with a towel, clothed Himself, and washed the disciples' feet feet. Peter's telling the church then and the church now, in order to survive difficult times with withstand attack, remain healthy, spiritually wrap yourself in slave clothes and serve each other. That's supposed to be your favorite outfit in the church, to wrap yourself with humility and to go as low as to wash each other's feet like a slave. Are you getting the picture now? Humility. If Jesus Christ Himself would leave the perfection of heaven, live on a fallen, sin-saturated earth among sinful people, and then serve us like a slave in the lowliest manner, be obedient to the point of death, even the death of a cross, which is the only way that you could be forgiven, you could be cleansed, you could have a new heart, new purpose, new life, and a new home in heaven. If He would do all that, then can we not, can we not, wrap ourselves in the towel of servanthood and care for those in the church family, even those who don't appreciate it. This church is to be saturated with people who are willing to serve each other and take on the lowliest duty, die to self, consider others more important than ourselves because that kind of humility is how God makes us strong to survive any test. You may not be tested right now, but every Christian in this room is tested. And every church is tested. To be humble is not to hang your head low. To humble is to serve others like a slave does his master. You say, is it all that important? Take a look at the last phrase of verse 5. God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble. The Greek here is telling us two important facts. 
two indicatives here, so these are stated facts. Fact one, God is against the self-sufficient and self-reliant. Fact two, God gives grace to the God-trusting and God-dependent. Now, you may be one who rolls out of here today and thinking pride's not that big a deal. You may roll your eyes at thinking anything biblical, but it doesn't change the fact that God hates pride. Proverbs 8.13, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance and the evil way and the perverted mouth I what? Hate. Why does God hate pride? When you as sinful human being aspire to the status and position of God, refuse to acknowledge your dependence on God, then it lifts your heart against Him and contends for supremacy, and God hates that. There are some students here this morning who are opposing God. You're doing your own thing under the radar of your parents. They don't know it yet. You're doing what you and your friends want. And you need to know today, as a Christian, God is against you. There are some adults here who are opposing God. You hear God's Word, you dismiss it, you excuse yourself, you comfort your own convicted heart with some alternative idea. You come up with anything other than repentance and your pride. You don't obey God and God is against you. God hates pride. I actually don't have a lot of things in this life that I hate. I've tried to think about the things that I hate. Now, honestly, I hate drivers that don't use their turn signal. Usually Lexus drivers, nothing personal. I, I hate calamari. It's, it's an it's a octopus, you know? Who eats that? I hate snails in my backyard. I hate guys that wear Speedo bathing suits, uh, except on the swim team. That's okay. I hate abortion, I hate child abuse, I hate racism, I hate men who abuse their wives, and I hate my own sin. I hate it. But all that's nothing compared to God's hatred for pride. John Calvin wrote, God cannot bear with seeing His glory appropriated by the creature even in the smallest degree. And because God cannot bear with this arrogance, He tells us in verse 5 that He actually opposes the proud. This opposition is a fact. It's indicative. It's real. It's present tense, ongoing, continual opposition. God is opposing you. And opposed literally means God is hostile towards you when you're proud. Pride is your most dangerous enemy. It is the sin you should be most alert to, most afraid of. God is opposed to it, and yet we're most ignorant of it. Jonathan Edwards called pride the most difficult sin to root out of your life. Pride will undermine you, destroy you, ruin you, lead to more sin, push you into compromise, and keep you enslaved to lusts. And pride is what will ruin this church and churches that Peter is writing to. Pride is the direct cause of complaining, criticism, division, quarreling, and more. And the good news is, is that God says He gives grace to the humble. Amen? God is quoting Proverbs 3.34 where the Hebrew is using different words, but it has the same meaning. Though he scoffs at the scoffers, yet he will give grace to the afflicted. God is hostile toward the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Have you been given grace? 
To become a Christian, you came to an end of yourself. You, you realized you couldn't save yourself. Uh, you, you have to be completely and totally dependent upon Christ. You depend completely on Him, His death, and on the cross for your sins, His resurrected life, His word, His character, and not your own. You must come to a point of broken humility even to become a Christian. And as a Christian now, God expects you to live the same way. You came to Christ in saving faith, now you live by faith. You came to Christ in repentance, now you live repentantly. You came to Christ in humility, now you live in humility. And you came to Christ by His grace, and now you live by grace. And God's grace, which is giving you what you don't deserve, continues while you live humbly, dependently by faith, and repentantly, but live independently, live by your flesh, in your own strength, proudly, and refuse to turn from your sin, and God is opposed to your proud, and He will humble you. That's why Peter says the key to surviving and thriving as a church is to practice humility to elders, to shepherd, men to submit, and all of us to put on the apron of a slave and serve each other the way Christ served us. So how can you tell? Well, other than this verse, let me give you some concluding thoughts. Are you a learner? Are you a learner? True learners are those who ask questions and they know they don't know anything about marriage, so they ask married couples who are older and wiser. Uh, The humble are those who know they don't know anything of parenting, so they take the class shepherding a child's heart, which I would affirm uh, incredibly so. Uh, To come to Christ, you had to come to a point where you said, I can't do anything. I don't know anything. I am nothing. Now I follow you. You follow Christ. And following Christ means you're a disciple, and a disciple is a learner. You're constantly learning. I don't care how mature you are. Secondly, do you live the Word of God? you got to know the Word of God to be a mature Christian. But mature Christians don't merely know the Word. They what? They live it. You know, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do what I say, Jesus says. Don't call Jesus Lord and not do what He says. To be a part of His family, do His will. Do His will. Are you, number three, a servant? The greatest among you will be a servant, and those who are truly humble are those who are willing to serve in any context. Number four, do you focus on others? The proud are always thinking about themselves. The humble are always thinking about others. And then number five, how you view yourself. The proud admit they sin and occasionally and need a Savior. The humble admit they're the worst sinner that they know. The humble know they deserve death daily and hell for eternity. The humble know they've received more grace, getting salvation, which they didn't deserve, and mercy that, than not getting hell that they do deserve. And all that came from Christ to themselves who are undeserving. Are you proud or are you humble? Let's pray together, shall we? Heavenly Father, we'd ask now that you would begin to work in our hearts in a way that maybe you haven't before. And Father, if there are any here who are still outside of your family, outside of your kingdom, that they really don't know you, maybe they know about Christ, and maybe they've always gone to church occasionally, Uh, Father, we pray that you begin to work in their heart and show them their sin and the desperate need to exchange all that they are for all that you are, and Father, that they would turn to you in God-given faith and repentance, and Father, that they would be truly born again. Uh, Father, anyone else who does know you, we pray that we might think deeply about humility and, Father, that we might honor you as we walk dependently upon you and love you for what you've done for us. We love you and we praise you and we thank you and ask again that you would be glorified as a result of this time. And we pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.